Come with me as we dive into some of the most intimate diaries a person could share. My mission is to inspire you to push through during the toughest of times, too. Thank you for being here. This is Push Diaries Podcast, and I'm your host, Tess. So I have Kaylee Mormon on the podcast today, and I'm so excited to have her. Yeah, Kaylee, I haven't talked to you since 2014 when I was on the hospice team at Knut Nelson in Alexandria. Yeah, it has been forever. I know, and you were one of like maybe four or five RNs. We had a really small team then. Yeah. And so how has it changed since I've left? You're becoming the director, right? Yes, I am. It's actually changed drastically. So we started out, when I started in hospice, we had, I, I think it was anywhere from 13 to 15 patients on services with us. And we basically had all of our patients right out of the Canoe Nelson Care Center. And so I was one of, I think, four nurses that were there. And we had a social worker and the director and, and whatnot. And so since then, in that short period of time, it feels like, We have grown to a census of 95 today. Yes. Yes, we have a huge census now, and we serve um, 22 different counties. That's amazing. Our most recent expansion was down to St. Cloud. So we're serving down in the Wake Park St. Cloud area. We serve up in Baxter, the Brainerd-Baxter area, and then we have another branch out of Wadena. That's amazing. Yes, when I was there, I think we had... Right around 20 or 25, like I think when I left, we had gotten our team up or our census up from, you know, 15 or something lower than that to over 20. So guys, you know what, seven years have gotten over 90. That's incredible. So Yeah. And last summer, we actually jumped to the over 100 mark. We hit 108. And so it was really just a, a huge success for us just because. You know, people always say, um, hospice, why are you so excited about hospice growing? And it's not the fact that hospice is growing and that more people are dying. It's the fact that people are dying no matter what. People are going to die whether they're on hospice or not. So the more people we can educate about using this Medicare service is, is just so exciting. And that's what we're celebrating. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you and I know we have been around people that have passed away. And I know for a lot of people maybe our age, they're starting to realize that, you know, our physical abilities are going to change over the years that we're alive. And we want to, I I second that, we want to educate people and help them know that when they themselves go through something sad or their children go through something sad or a horrible diagnosis or disease that, you know, as we age, we can be there for our parents and we can be there for our family members that go through this stuff. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, It's not like we've died ourselves before, you know, (laughs) unfortunately we can't go to the other side and say, how was that experience? And then come back. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yes. So I wish we could, but yeah. No, well, I, I totally agree with that. Hospice is just, I mean, it's something that it's a, it's a program that Medicare does such wonderful things with and it allows nurses and spiritual care, social workers, medical director, 
And then Canute Nelson Hospice, we have a whole team of ancillary services that we bring into the home that allows us to provide that comfort, care, and compassion for these people during their end stage of life, Yes, which we will all go through at some point. Right, right. And so I know when I was there, I shared an office with Michael, and I was happy to see the documents you passed over to me. Not only do you offer chaplaincy, but you also have like pet therapy, I guess is what you would call it. Yep. And so that's really cool because... Even with my service dog, Macy, it's like, oh my gosh, Kaylee, when I get back into this, yeah. Macy could really be like a beneficial, you know, supplemental piece to this. Absolutely. So- Absolutely. Yeah. Our pet therapy is just so wonderful. We have wonderful volunteers who have actually gone through the pet therapy <clears throat> training with their animals. And so that's that's the type of pet therapy that we do and they're just phenomenal. We recently just bought um, animated stuffed dogs and cats, too, that people with Alzheimer's and dementia have really taken a loving to. And yeah. we, yeah, we just, we've gotten so much positive feedback from that just because it's, it's much like a real animal. And yeah. if they were animal lovers when they, you know, when they were growing up or, you know, when, when they were able to have pets, bringing this back to them is just such a strong comfort for them. Yes, absolutely. And I feel like even just it being like a robotic dog or cat, like that's cool too. I feel like if they're not reacting to something that, you know, you are trying to bring some kind of, you know, supplement to help them have a better day. I'm sure that's really cool. So Yeah. yeah. So when I was in cancer treatment at Mayo Clinic, they had a um, massage therapist come in and see me. Like, I think they offered it to me weekly. And it's interesting, you know, going through my osteosarcoma and chemo and cancer journey, I was really thankful to my very short experience I had with you guys as a hospice social worker for those three months because it really prepared me to have those conversations with my doctors, with my family, with my friends. And Honestly, Kaylee, it made me feel a little bit more comfortable about it. And have you thought about your own time on this earth? I I know you're a mom to young kids and I know you plan on being around for a long time, but I'm sure working in this profession has allowed you a great deal of peace if and when death comes to your door. How do you feel about that? Absolutely. So um, my mom is, she's so funny. She always asks me, so because you work in hospice, does that make you comfortable with the thought of dying? And I, she asked me that all the time. And I've been in hospice for over seven years now. And my response is always the same. And it's that I'm never comfortable with the thought of dying, especially right now, because I do have three young kids. I do have a wonderful life and I want to continue to live it. However, if, God forbid, I would come down with a terminal illness of some sort, to know that I would have hospice there to help support me and guide me along that journey, I would feel more comfortable with it. Of course, the thought of leaving my family and leaving, I mean, everybody is just a terrible thought, but it's a terrible thought if it's a young child leaving this earth or if it's a 108-year-old leaving this earth. Obviously, we're more okay with it when the 108-year-old leaves this earth because they've gotten more time to spend with their family and prepare. And they've likely seen losses of their own children and things like that. But, you know, I, I always find that to be such a, um, such a twofold question because it's, you know, I, 
I am I am comfortable with the thought of dying and the support that I know that that we as a hospice program can provide for the people dying, but I'm not ready to die yet. Right. Yeah, me neither. I yeah. second that. So I have a list of things that people had questions about and things I wanted to make sure we talked about today. And so we can just kind of go down the list. You sent some really great information over to me too that I'll make available to the listeners if they have any questions. Before we get started, I just want to say too that, you know, every county, like I'm in Michigan right now, I know you're in Minnesota, Kaylee, but every, at least we hope, most counties have things available or resources. What would you say to people that are out of state that maybe don't know where to start and where to look at getting more information about hospice? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So any county, if you pull up a county website, if you go into the um, county resources, um, if, if there's like a, um, like a, we have a welcoming um, committee here in Alexandria, they would be able to provide that type of information for, for anybody. Otherwise, if you do um, a Google search, um, and, you know, it will provide for you the information of what hospice agencies are local in your area. Another great resource is we have the Minnesota Department of Health website that we can pull up. We have every, every state should have a, a plethora of information available for what services or go to your local clinic, hospital, ask your doctor, ask your friends. See what they recommend because it's a lot of it is word of mouth too. And yeah. which hospice agency is the best? If your if your friend's grandma passed away on hospice services, see how they liked those services because not one hospice is exactly the same as the next. Hospices provide different services. We're required to provide a certain number of services, but additional services um, that the hospice brings in, like massage therapy, Reiki therapy, music therapy, all sorts of things like that. Different hospices vary. And so, um, but I would say, you know, your doctor is going to be your best resource. Yes. And I love what you said too about word of mouth. You know, I was all the way down in Cannon Falls, Minnesota, kind of by Red Wing. And I had heard about you guys. I, I also went to school up in St. Cloud. And so you guys really were not only from my friends and family, but like, you know, my very best friend's grandpa passed away and used Knut Nelson before I even got there. And you know, just from a professional standpoint, an educational standpoint, St. Cloud State, I had teachers that talked about you guys. And so I know you were up and coming at the time, but you're right. Word of mouth is huge. And a lot of long-term care facilities or funeral homes too might, like you're saying, have experience working with, you know, Knut Nelson and be able to recommend you. Or, you know, if you're in Michigan or Texas or wherever you may be, absolutely, there are lots of resources out there. So um, you know, there's a funny story about a lady who had an advanced directive and she told her kids like, oh, it's in my safety deposit box. And they said, wait a minute, mom, you got to pull it out of there and get us copies because it's going to do us no good. And if, if at 2 a.m. you or dad have a stroke and we can't find your paperwork. You want to talk a little bit about what an advanced directive is just real quick. You don't have to go into the nitty gritty, but... Yeah, yeah. Well, we encourage everybody to have an advanced directive. Again, you know, if you're 18 years old and you're, you know, just going out on your own, or if you're 100 years old and you've been on your own for a long time, 
the advanced directive is going to share with somebody when you're unable to verbalize your decisions. It's going to share with them what your decisions are. You know, God forbid you pass away um, at the age of 18, 19 years old. And, you know, if you want to be a donor, if you want to donate your organs, you can have that on there. Your advanced directive is really just your wishes put on paper and it's notarized. So um, somebody else doesn't have to make the decisions for you and especially the decisions that you wouldn't necessarily want. It's your decisions and you get to make them. Yeah. When you and I talk about like how we're young and we have a lot of life left to live, I totally agree with you. And I, and I would also say too that absolutely do, do you and I, if something, God forbid, like you said, happens, we don't want our partners, husbands, mom, dad, daughter, right? To like have to make these huge decisions when one, they might not be comfortable making those decisions. Or what if Kaylee, you and I have a brother and a sister that completely think differently about how I'm going to be cared for. An advanced directive isn't meant to scare people or, you know, we don't want anybody to feel like they can't fill it out. It's really something that protects you, just like your will or your trust or your estate. This is something that's supposed to bring peace and guidance and understanding amongst all family members. And so, like you said, even just donating your organs, like how huge would that be if you got in a car accident and your heart, your eyes, your liver, your kidneys could be used for someone else. I mean, how amazing would that be for you to save, what, six lives or something with one body? Yep, absolutely. We can kind of sort of go now, I guess, and talk about the Pulsed because I'm seeing a lot of this stuff on the advanced directive is actually really similar to the Pulsed. Yep. And so you as a nurse, I know doctors too are really familiar with the pulse. This is something that we require when you come on to hospice, but it's also really good for older adults if they're living alone to have on their fridge, right? And so if a ambulance were to come or something like that, or a caregiver aid, anyone that maybe isn't in an immediate relationship with the family could come on and see see this. So do you mind just walking through this with me? It's been a little while since I've done this with someone. Yeah. And they've changed a little bit too. So not much, but so POLST stands for Providers Orders for Life Sustaining Treatment. So a POLST needs to be signed off by an MD after you have it filled out. So it's basically saying if you want, it's it's asking you, so you're going to record on there if you want life-sustaining treatment or if you want to be a DNR, do not resuscitate. So on there, it will give you options. So even if you want to be a DNR, it asks you, do you do you still want IV therapies? Do you want IV antibiotics? Do you want, you know, it, it gives you the variations of different options that you can have while you are unable to, to verbalize those. So right. if say, say you were to fall over in your home and go unconscious, and you have that hanging on your fridge, the EMTs can go up to it and say, oh, look, they're a full code and they want every bit of treatment possible. So then they know, great, let's do CPR, let's give them IV fluids, let's do all of this. Now, if they go up to the fridge and say, oh, they're a DNR, DNI, so do not resuscitate. And um, sometimes they're a do not transfer, so a DNT. So they don't want to be transferred to the hospital at all. They don't want to do any of that. 
at that time, they can call the police department and have the the police come in, um, confirm the patient deceased. And so it's really your wishes on that paper signed by a doctor to make sure that you, you know, your, your wishes are being heard. Yeah. It's really an amazing way that we can advocate for ourselves long after we're here, right? I mean, whether, you know, we talk about disease progression to Kaylee or being unconscious from a stroke or, you know, a severe, you know, whatever the case may be, right? If, if yeah. you're dementia and you can't say, hey, I don't want to be kept alive with IV fluids and, you know, all this, that, and the other thing, yeah. it really gives the family then the permission to care for you in the way that you want. And so, you know, I've heard stories of people, I, I had asked some friends just online, you know, hey, what do you guys want us to talk about? And a lot of people talked about how to balance medication and when to rely on it versus, you know, caregiver guilt. Can we talk a little bit about that and maybe what your experience is? If people listening are like, what are you talking about? What does this have anything to do with hospice? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So I'm wondering, can... Can you read the question again? And then I'm going to think about it in two different ways. I'm going to maybe explain it in two different ways. Yeah. So one says food and medications. I've seen loved ones argue over the amount of food to give the patient. Some want to try to force food and others feel that loved ones are not encouraging enough food. When it comes to pain medication, some feel they're dragging up the patient while others don't see their loved one in pain. And so I guess, yes, you're right. There's two different caveats. Food and medication. So we yeah. can talk about food first. Yeah, let's go with food first. So when it, people have to remember too, so you and I, we're moving, we're doing stuff. We're, you know, we're going to the grocery store. We're going to the bathroom, getting up and walking to the bathroom. We're doing all of this stuff. So our body is naturally going to be hungry, right? So we're, we're going to require food. It's going to trigger something in our minds to say, oh, our stomach is hungry. So when a lot of times these people have such a sedentary lifestyle to where they're unable to move or they don't move on their own, so that, number one, is going to cause them to require less food to eat. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they're dying. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are, you know, that they are going to lose weight. It just simply means that they have a sedentary lifestyle because of their disease, that they're not as hungry. Now, when we get to the point of um, a patient who let's use Alzheimer's, for example, who is unable to eat on their own because their mental capacity is not allowing them to decide whether or not, you know, they they can eat on their own. They can't even sometimes grab what's in front of them to put it up to their mouth and comprehend the fact that, you know, that's, that's eating. So when you're assisting with somebody to eat, if they are eating the food, if they're taking it in and swallowing, keep feeding them until, you know, until they don't want to eat anymore. A lot of times they'll clamp their jaws shut and they will, they'll, they'll tell you in one way, shape or form that they don't want to eat anymore. Um, When we get to the end, end of life. So they're bed bound and their, their terminal illness has, has caused them to be imminent. So death is imminent. A lot of times your when your organs are shutting down, your, your body does not require that food intake. So your body makes itself comfortable. It makes its own self comfortable. A lot of, you know, you and I would be uncomfortable if we were dehydrated. However, when somebody is imminently dying, 
their organs are shutting down and their body is not functioning the same way as it would uh, otherwise. And so they're not, they're not starving. They're not having that hunger pain that they typically would if they were up and doing things and whatnot. Their body is um, adjusting to what, what is next, which is death. And yeah. so um, I would I would never suggest force feeding, setting somebody up when they are um, unconscious. Yes. If they are laying in bed and they are comfortable and they look very comfortable, they are. They're comfortable. They yeah. would show you in one way, um, you know, or in different ways, excuse me. If they are uncomfortable, they'll flail their arms. They'll groan. They'll... Um, Grimace. Yes. Yep. Different Different things like that. Now... So that's the eating side of things, but we always encourage, um, because our mouth gets dry and a person who is imminently dying, their mouth gets dry too. So, um, at the, the very least to have a swab at their bedside, um, a mouth swab is what we call them with a little cup of water. And so dunk the swab in the water, make sure all the excess water gets out so that doesn't drain down their throat when you're swabbing their mouth. But um, swab their mouth out and do that every, you know, 30 minutes to an hour just to make sure their mouth doesn't get so dry. Because even when you are dying, a dry mouth is uncomfortable. It can be uncomfortable. So making sure there's that moisture there to have that mouth um, swabbed out and and very comfortable is is very important. Yes, yes. Very good. And, you know, I agree. My grandma, she had dementia when she was passing away. And you know, my mom, even though she was a nurse for 30 years, she said, Tess, am I not feeding her enough or like making her eat enough? And I just reminded her like, mom, she's comfortable. You, yes, today grandma only ate pudding and a popsicle and a sip of orange juice, but that's all she wanted and that's all she needs. And so I, you know, I, I hear this question and I, and I know, you know, people might feel guilty and say like, you didn't feed mom anything today. And Again, this is where hospice can be so helpful because an RN or a director like yourself, Kaylee, could really educate the family about that or a social worker or a chaplain or a friend who's been through it. And so if there is discord in your family about how much to give or when to offer when death is imminent, we would just encourage you guys to be sure to ask those people those questions because they're there to help. Yep. And that's exactly right. That's what we're here for. We are um, educated in um, the dying process and of life. And so that's why it's so important to get somebody in the home who knows about that type of stuff and who is educated on that because we're you're not expected to know everything about the dying process. And that's what we encourage people to do is rely on us as the experts in hospice care to teach you. Yes, yes, absolutely. And then let's talk about medication. Obviously, there comes a time when Tylenol, ibuprofen, it's not cutting it. You know, you realize your husband is in a lot of pain and um, you know that they have a disease that is not going to get better or say they're in stage four cancer of some kind. Um, when an RN comes in and the admission is done, can you talk a little bit about how medication can really relieve pain? I mean, obviously, you and I know that this is a huge part of hospice care. Yep. Absolutely. So um, dying in itself is, is not painful. It should not be painful because your body is just naturally shutting down. However, we don't oftentimes see somebody come on to hospice services because they're 108 years old and they're just going to die of natural causes. You know, we they typically have a disease that they're dying or suffering from. 
And so that's when we, we um, discuss with the family on what types of medications would be beneficial to help them be comfortable in their diagnosis um, with their terminal illness. And so, um, you know, medications are kind of twofold. They help with um, anxiety and pain. Um, and they can help with shortness of breath. They can help with um, all sorts of different things. So if we get a person on with COPD, um, which is a lung disease, we get them on and we notice right away they're on two liters of oxygen, but they're still gasping for air. Our first thought would be let's get them on morphine because morphine helps relax those muscles and allows them, the person, the patient, to breathe easier. It's not going to knock them out. It's not going to um, cause them to be sleepy all the time. It's simply going to help relieve that discomfort that they're feeling. Now, sometimes it does take some trial and error to, to get the medication dosing right. But we always start with the lowest dose possible of a pain medication or an anxiety medication and go up from there. So if the lowest dose possible is still causing drowsiness and fatigue, that medication might not be appropriate, and we might have to look at switching to a different medication. But morphine and lorazepam are our pain and anxiety medications that we lean towards for most of our patients unless they are allergic to them. So morphine is for shortness of breath and pain, and lorazepam is more for the anxiety piece. If you just get told, you know, by your doctor that you have a terminal illness and you um, are expected to live six months or less, that will likely cause some anxiety for you. We are there to help ease that anxiety. We're not just going to provide um, medication for you, but we're going to help you and we're going to coach you to be comfortable with your illness as well. So um, medications, you know, we get that question a lot from families and how do we know when it's too much or, you know, mom is just sleeping all the time now. Well, it's not necessarily because of the medications. It's likely being caused by their dying process as well. Right. So as they progress in their disease, they're going to get more fatigue. And so it's not necessarily just because of the medications, but medications can have something to do with that. And then maybe it's not the correct medication for mom or dad. Right, right. And I think, too, the morphine and the Ativan is such a great transitional piece to help the loved one go from uncomfortable, anxious, like you said, and be more restful so you can have those meaningful conversations or have people come in from out of state and see mom or dad before they, you know, really kind of surrender to all that hospice has to offer. And it's not like we, like we're saying, it's not necessarily once morphine comes on board, immediately they're going to pass away within that day. Um, but it is a transitional piece that is meant to make them comfortable. And I think it's wonderful that hospice offers that because a lot of people want to stay in their homes or they want to stay, you know, with their daughter at their house while they're dying. And this really allows, right, the caregivers too to have some aid in that. Absolutely. And so, you know, when we're talking about um, morphine helping a patient out, we've had a patient patients, on many patients on hospice services for a year or longer. And they've been on morphine since day one. Right. And so it's not a lot of people hear three three words, hospice, morphine, and lorazepam, and they think, oh my gosh, mom or dad is dying. That's not the case at all. It's allowing them to be comfortable so they can spend the remainder of their days comfortable. Right. Focusing right. on the quality, their quality of life. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes people might not need morphine around the clock or lorazepam around the clock, like you're saying. Maybe mom or dad only needs it once or twice a week, and that's okay. But the fact that you have it, you have a nurse on call that can come at any time if you need help, or maybe, Kaylee, someone's feeling nervous about how much to give. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you coach people on how much to give someone? Yeah. Absolutely. So we all, we have a nurse on call 24-7. As a Medicare requirement in hospice, you have to have a nurse on call 24-7. And so if you, if it's 2 a.m., dad wakes up and says, oh my gosh, my shoulder is really hurting. I need something for pain. And you're thinking, wow, I, I remember the hospice nurse saying about saying that we had morphine, but I have no idea what to give. That's when you pick up the, the phone and call that nurse and say, you know what, dad's having a lot of shoulder pain. Um, you know, she'll probably say on a scale of one to 10, how does he rate his pain? And so he says, it's an eight. It's really bad. So we're going to start out with morphine and we're going to start out with the lowest dose and then we can titrate up from there if it's not helping. And so, um, the, the wonderful part about hospice is that a nurse, if you're not comfortable doing it, the nurse will come out to your own home and do it for you. They'll administer that medication. They'll draw it up for you. They will make sure dad is comfortable before they leave and go home. And then you always can call them back too if he's not comfortable an hour hour later. Yeah, yeah. And that's pretty amazing too that, that hospice allows that. Um, again, like you said, people are very expressive in the way they're dealing with pain. Sometimes they can't say my shoulder hurts and it's an eight, like you're saying. And so having that medication and having that guidance is is everything. I mean... Being able to keep our loved ones, um, you know, comfortable, that's huge. So, um, let's see here. Someone asked, what does hospice look like with COVID? For my friends who do hospice, usually family can't visit unless they're actively dying and are within 24 hours of passing, it is assumed. Now, I know this is different, too, when people are in their homes, but how has that been for you as a provider, Kaylee, during COVID? Oh, gosh. COVID has been a struggle for us, to say the least, just like everybody else. Um, You know, we have some care centers. Now, I I should say things are really lightening up, and it's becoming really wonderful now because the the facilities are all lightening up, and they're, they're lightening their restrictions, and so families are going in to visit. But in the the hardy parts of COVID back in November and December, families weren't allowed to go and visit their loved ones unless they were likely to pass away within that 24 hours. Now, we come from small town Alexandria, Minnesota, and our care center is absolutely wonderful. And if the patient was on hospice services, period, the loved ones could come in as long as they had an appointment time. So if they um, if they called and said, you know, my dad's on hospice services, I'm going to come at three o'clock today. Perfect. They could go in and visit. Um, so they, the Canoe Nelson Care Center really, really took that um, in knowing that it's so important to be with your loved one when they're passing away. Um, some other facilities had a lot more um, restrictions and so families couldn't come in. In fact, we as a hospice team couldn't go into a lot of facilities either. We had to do all of our um, cares um, and, and assessments over Zoom. Wow. And that was difficult for a lot of our team members. Our doctor, our um, medical director, Dr. Dan Kreider, he he um, had to do a lot of his assessments over Zoom too. And it's it's more than difficult to try and assess somebody over the phone. 
Right. And ultimately, you guys were really trying to keep people safe. And, and you know, for your organization specifically, it's really great that you have such a huge team across assisted living and the nursing home and rehab department. I mean, you guys are able to, Kaylee, I'm sure you know a lot of the nurses personally. And so being able to see someone you're familiar with and trust on a Zoom call, I bet makes all the difference in the world. But um, Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We, you know, I say I said that um, sort of grumpy that we had to assess patients over Zoom, but we were blessed that we were able to do it that way too, because um, or that we are still able to do it that way too, because without that, we wouldn't have been able to provide the care period for patients. And right. so, yes, we you know we were blessed with with the ability to um, do Zoom visits and whatnot with the patients. Yeah, and do do you feel like families were really? fearful and maybe paranoid about you coming into their home during COVID or were they, was hospice a welcome support? Yeah. You know, there, I would say there was about five to 7% of our families in their homes that did not want our hospice care teams to come in. Yeah. And the rest were like, come on in. You guys got your masks on. You guys are wearing your full PPE. We know, I mean, yeah, out of every single person that we could let into our home, they knew that we were safe. To yeah. come in there. And so, yeah, there was a very, very small percentage. And that was pretty early on as well. And so, you know, and it only lasted a shorter period of time where patients um, didn't want anybody in addition in their home. So we, we've been super fortunate um, with our patients allowing us to come in there and care for them. Um, you know, obviously with, with some of the ancillary services, music therapy, massage therapy and whatnot, um, they were more hesitant with that to allow those in their homes. But all of our nurses, social workers, our, our home health aides, they know that we're there to help them and they appreciate the help. So they were more than welcoming to us. Right. Well, very good. Now, another thing I think people don't realize is say you are aging in place and then you bring on hospice and let's use a spousal situation again where a husband's going on hospice and um, we'll call him Joe. Joe likes to sit in his recliner, right? And he has advanced stages of lung cancer or something like that, that he's chosen to not um, get preventative care or life-saving care. And so he is starting to not ambulate as much and he's in the recliner all the time. What does hospice then recommend? Say they're using pain medication and he's not eating anymore and it's becoming difficult to do perineal care and um, get grandpa to the toilet or the commode. What would you recommend then? Yeah, absolutely. And we come into a lot of those situations to where we are going to be bringing in um, our home health aide or our nurse to come and provide that care. So if Joe can't get into the shower, we're going to bring the shower to him. We're going to give him a sponge bath. We're going to make sure, you know, that he's nice and clean and able to um, feel fresh, even though he's not able to get into the shower. Um, as far as him not wanting to walk to the bathroom, we will bring in a bedside commode. Um, if he's not able to sleep in his regular bed because the head doesn't elevate and um, lay all the way back, um, we'll bring in a hospital bed. Really, we can bring in any durable medical equipment and supplies that we need to in order to make the patient as comfortable as possible. Yes. And I love that. When we talk about coverage, too, people think like, I can't afford a hospital bed or I can't afford, you know, 
this, that, and the other thing. And again, if you are in touch with your doctors and in touch with your hospice agency, they are more than willing to help provide this stuff. Yep. And in Medicare, Medicaid, it covers it, right? I mean, is there any a time you have to deny people equipment of any kind because they don't have money for it? No. So Medicare, the hospice payment, payment, this is how it works. So Medicare pays the hospice agency an allotted daily rate. And so days one to 60, the hospice agency um, gets a, a certain amount of money. And then days 61 plus, the hospice agency gets a, a different amount of money. And so within that payment that the hospice agency gets comes the cost of medications related to your terminal prognosis, um, durable medical equipment, um, all the things, supplies, um, briefs, wipes, anything like that, anything that's going to make you more comfortable, hospice will cover the cost of. Now, when we get into the question of um, lift chairs or things that cannot be sanitized, those are the things that would be an out-of-pocket expense. Right. Right. And, you know, the beautiful thing about when we're talking about, you know, the example of Joe, if he can't be in the recliner anymore because his wife can't help him roll to the side, if he's not going to the bathroom anymore and she's change a brief, right? Again, that medication in that hospital bed can be used so that the so that Joe can be in his living room. Like, you know, Kaylee, for example, to be morbid, if I were to pass away, I would want to be probably in this room right behind me. I've got a big picture window in front of me. I've got a big picture window to my right and a picture window to my left. And so I think it's amazing, too, that say the recliner's in the basement, right? Or you're in the back bedroom and it's dark and and people can't sit around the bed. It's really amazing that you can then say, hey, Tess or hey, social worker, talk to this family about other options to make him comfortable so that he is less agitated. Yep. Um, and that's just really amazing. So um, yeah, thinking about being able to roll the patient from side to side to get that brief up easier. Or maybe you're not even dressing the client anymore. Maybe they're wearing a nightgown now and just sleeping on a washable bed pad. Those are all huge, right? For end of life. Absolutely. It is. And it's really taking that cost and that burden away from the family. And so having hospice come in, you know, we, we see a lot of families who are burnt out. We're not born and raised to care for somebody at the end of life. So if I had a full-time job and I was caring for my husband who is dying of cancer at home, I have young children, um, having hospice come in and take that burden off of you so you can spend that quality of time with your loved one versus being the primary caregiver for that loved one is so important. And right. I think it's something important to note, too, that hospice is not there 24-7. You're on call 24-7, but we don't provide the in the home 24-7. And so um, I, a lot of people sometimes get confused with that too, saying, I don't want somebody there constantly in my home with me. Or sometimes it's the opposite to where oh, they yeah. do want somebody in their homes 24-7. But it's not, it's not that burdensome piece. We're going to come in and we are going to provide that support and education. And when you're done with us, you get to get rid of us. You get to kick us out that front door. So um, it's really just to provide that support when you want us and when your loved one who is dying wants us so you can spend quality of time with him. Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay, so um, people were asking, 
you know, as far as power of attorney for healthcare, power of attorney for financial, that was kind of the last question people had. And then trust versus a will. Um, again, these are things that are beneficial to have these conversations now with an attorney or with your family so that these decisions don't have to be made. I mean, by just your family by themselves after you passed away. Kaylee, you and I both know that money can be kind of an ugly thing if it's not discussed ahead of time. And so, yeah, what would you say about that topic? Um, That's a really sticky topic is what I would say. It is. <laughs> yes. If you don't have that laid out um, with exactly what you want done with your land, with your um, finances, with anything and everything that you could possibly think of, your family will likely fight over it. And yep. so even if we have, you know, the kindest, most sincere and genuine people you could ever imagine, your family will still likely have some altered thoughts about what should be done with the land or the funds because you didn't say what you want done with it. Right. And so if you have it in a will, if you meet with an attorney and it's signed by that attorney, there is no question about it what's going to happen with it. However, if it's not, people will fight over it. And yeah. so I highly suggest that that, um, that that all gets taken care of. And so even if you have a financial power of attorney, after you die, that goes away. That person does not get to be your financial power of attorney anymore. So that having a financial power of attorney is when you are alive. After you die, the minute that you die, they have no rights over your funding anymore. Right. Then your trust and your will yeah. come in. Yep, absolutely. Unless you have a trust or a will, that that person cannot say what happens with your finances any longer. Right, right. So an example would be you are a gentleman with a daughter and you give her the rights to taking care of your finances while you're alive. So if you're living in an assisted living facility or in an independent apartment or you're still owning your home, let's say um, you have a stroke, right? And you're not able to then make a decision or make those payments. Your daughter would do that. However, if your will was in the name of your son, then the son wouldn't be in charge of those finances until you're passed away. That's exactly right. Yep. Right, right. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. So it can get to be really sticky and it does. Really hairy. So yeah. Say, yeah. Even though we want to say our family would never do that and they would never think about fighting about money or my assets, they will. Yeah. It's right. It's, it's hard. It's like even you and I, I'm sure you and I have assumptions about what our parents might do if they were to pass away or get sick. Yep. But we really can't assume anything until we have the conversation and know what those expectations are. And then again, Kaylee, I think it's beautiful that hospice and all of these preparatory, you know, things that you can do ahead of time, all this paperwork is really meant to make all of this so much easier and make people get along and have a clear expectation about what is coming. It is not meant to cause any turmoil. And so it is. It's hard. I think it's a hard conversation a lot of people don't have until it's, sometimes it's too late, which is unfortunate because all of these documents are ready and waiting now. Absolutely. Yes. And, our, you know, when you come on to hospice services, and like I said earlier, you don't have to be on hospice in order to make a will or a power of attorney or a, or do a trust or anything like that. You can do that at, at any, any time. Do it if now. You're yes, do it now. 
Um, but if you come into hospital services and you still don't have that taken care of, our social workers are phenomenal resources. Social workers in general are phenomenal resources, and they will help you. Um, they don't necessarily help you do your will, but they'll help you get all of the paperwork and everything that you were to need to complete that. They will get that for you. So yes, yes, it's most I, definitely something that's so important. I second that. And you nurses are great too. I used to tell people all the time, like, if I'm not here and your nurse is here, ask her because she's amazing. And yes. You're right. We want to make this easier. And if it's even just having a short educational conversation with two kids that are in their 50s about their parent and what this means, um, we want to do that. We want to help make it as easy as possible. Now, Kaylee, one thing I'm not as familiar with is the funeral home and funeral plot side. So after mom or dad passes away, can you talk a little bit about what hospice does in order to get those two connected if the family's like, what now? What do I do with the body? And then I also wanted to just touch base on if people like to wash mom or dad in their own homes, or maybe mom or dad has to stay there for a couple of days because the brother from Texas can't get up here until, you know, a week from now. What are the options about the funeral home and seeing the body before cremation? Absolutely. And that's a great question. So, um, you should never, if you're on hospice, you should never be, um, surprised at what comes next because your, your care team should always educate you on what comes next. So, um, you know, you sign up for hospice services, you know, and say your mom is on hospice for three months. During that three months, we're going to educate you on the end. You know, what's to come? What's going to happen? What is she going to go through? What is going to happen after she passes away? So what happens when somebody is on hospice services is, um, say you have mom at home and you go in to check on her and it's midnight and she has no pulse. She has passed away. What you do then is you call hospice, and hospice takes care of everything from there. So hospice, um, we have to call the medical examiner because this is in Minnesota now. So we have to call the medical examiner to ensure that they um, that they know the patient was on hospice services, and um, to make it so much less traumatic for the family if the police officers don't have to come out. Which if they weren't on hospice services, they would have to come out. And so um, once the medical examiner releases the body, per se, so over the phone they do a release of the body, then we can call the funeral home and say, you know, mom is here and she just passed away and family is wanting you to pick up in two hours because they're waiting for their son who lives a half hour away to come and say goodbye. So we do all of that. And then we do, you know, deal with the medication, the um, wasting of the medication, um, we can't do that as, as nurses. We have to watch the family waste the medications, but we walk you through step by step. There's never going to be an unknown. Um, we're always going to educate you and walk you through step by step. Yeah, that's huge. I, you know, I love that you brought up the medication disposal too, because I've had, um, you know, people tell me like, oh, you know, my mom is passing away and there is a son in the house who has addiction problems. I'm really worried about not necessarily him stealing medication while she's alive, but a a lot of people worry about the disposal part. And I think that that's really huge that we offer that support because even when my grandma passed away, I remember the RN who came out to our house walked me through it. She said, you know, if you have kitty litter, that's a great thing. You can dump the rest of the morphine in there because it's not safe to put in our septic system either. We don't want to be dumping oxy down the toilet. Nope. 
nope, we definitely don't. And so because families don't always have kitty litter sitting around, we actually have our nurses carry it with them. They carry bags of kitty litter for disposal of the medications. And so once everything is taken care of with mom, she is, you know, she, the family either decides that they want to wash her up, which a lot of times family does not want to do. They want the, the nurse to do it. And so the nurse will wash her up, change her gown, change the brief that she's in, change her sheets, you know, if they were wrinkled or whatever. And then the family can come and see her then when she's all washed up and her hair right. is brushed and whatnot. Right. Now, you had asked the question about what happens if the son lives down in Texas and he wants to come and come home and see mom before um, she's cremated. The funeral homes are phenomenal. They will work with you in whatever you wish to do. Um, sometimes we even have, um, we have the cremation society here in Minnesota and our funeral homes locally will work with the cremation society knowing that there's a loved one that wants to come and see mom. So can, you know, can you keep her there until, um, until he comes and says goodbye and then they'll transport down to the cremation society. So there's never, it's always about the, um, family's wants and needs when it comes to after death and what they want to do with um, mom or dad or their loved one and um and how it's how that's taken care of yeah very good well thank you for touching on that i wanted to talk a little bit about end of life um what families can expect as their loved one dies maybe even kaylee the last four hours of someone's life what changes will you see you know obviously they won't be hungry um can you just talk a little bit about that because i know this you know one of the scariest parts is one getting on hospice for families because like you're saying they don't always know that we're there to help and then two oh my gosh, what is it going to be like when mom or dad dies? And it's actually a really peaceful, spiritual, and like holy experience that I am so blessed and fortunate to have been able to help people during that time and families really then because the patient is totally calm and relaxed. It's educating the family that, you know, this is a beautiful time for you to share, even though so, so hard. Absolutely. 100%. So, you know, in the last four hours of life, um, if it was like a textbook death, we have, um, you know, we would likely see some modeling occur. So which is um, discoloration, likely grayish purple of the furthest extremities away from the heart, because your blood is not circulating through your body anymore when you're in the last four hours of life. It's not circulating the way it should. And so you're likely going to see the fingertips maybe turning purple, the, the ear, the cartilage on the ear turning purple, sometimes the tips of the nose. Um, the kneecap, um, and your, your toes are typically the places that we'll see it. Now, we, I've seen it on calves, on patients' calves, because when they're, when, when they're dependent, when they're sitting in a dependent position, that blood typically will pool where the dependent part is. So if that's, if your calves are sitting up against the bed, then it will likely pool there. The, the crazy thing about modeling is that it can move. So if you're, you know, if your toes are modeling and if I turn you over in bed just to get you, you know, off your back, it can be gone then. And so it comes and goes, but most likely in the past four or in the last four hours of life, it'll, it'll likely stay. So oftentimes too, you'll hear like a rattling in the throat. And what that is, it's just saliva pooling up on your vocal cord. It yeah. sounds very uncomfortable. It sounds yeah. like somebody would be very uncomfortable, but it's not for them. No. 
Um, a lot of families want us to suction patients when they sound really readily. And I always explain that it's more, it would be more uncomfortable for me to suction them because it's inserting a tube down into their throat to get that saliva than it would be for them to sit there and, and that to be on their vocal cords. Right. Yeah. You're totally right. And it's totally normal too. I mean, out of the, you know, many people that I've seen pass away, it's darn near every person that rattles. I think yep. I saw just a couple, you know, my fiance's grandfather had ALS and he was just so peaceful. Just he was breathing through his mouth, you know, with his head back a little bit, but he was so peaceful and he actually had no rattling. And so I know you're right. It's pretty typical though for people to have that rattling and it's nothing to be afraid of. Like you're saying, as long as they're not grimacing or in pain, it is 100% normal. And in fact, a huge way that we're able to tell where they're at in the dying process. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. And so, you know, some people have that in, in nursing terms, death rattle, um, which isn't, of course, um, the most beautiful name for it, but it, it's truly what it is. It's when a patient is imminently dying, um, they get that rattle. And so um, some people will have it. My husband's mom, when she was passing away, she had it for days on end. And it's wow. more irritating to the family because it sounds like they are uncomfortable than it is to the patient going through it. So it's not something that we necessarily have to worry about. However, right. we do have medications. Um, one of them is atropine that we, so what it is, it's a, it's in like a little eyedropper, like a, um, for, for eye drops. And it's a liquid solution that you put underneath the tongue and it absorbs into the salivary glands. It helps absorb that extra fluid that your body is making essentially. And so the good part about it is it helps with that rattle in the throat. The bad part about it is that it doesn't just dry up that rattle in the throat. It dries your mouth too. And so if somebody's on oxygen and you're giving them atropine, swabbing that mouth is so important to do very frequently because they're going to dry up. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So you know what, Keely? There was one more question about pediatric patients and your experience there. Now, I was only with the hospice agency up with with you at Knut Nelson for three months. And I did have, I believe, just one patient who was below the age of 18 who had a brain tumor and um, she went on hospice. And so um, I don't have a lot of experience with that. And I'm sure your population that you serve is fairly limited. But yeah, if you could talk a little bit about what services or, or how, how do you nurse differently to a family that has a young child who's passing away versus an elderly? And also culturally, have you helped with Native American populations or um, Spanish populations with this? And how what does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. So first off, the pediatric side of things. Now, we um, we serve, thankfully, um, more of a geriatric population. It's so comforting to know that, um, you know, that not even necessarily that the need isn't there for um, pediatrics, but a lot of times they are in the hospital when they, you know, if a pedi- pediatric um, child passed away or, you know, they're getting treatment up until the last possible time that right. they can. We have run into the situation, however, when a um, child is born with um, a heart issue 
or, um, or disease that's not compatible with life. And so really, you know, we're doing the same thing that we are for anybody else on hospice services. We are catering our services to make your, the, you as the patient and the family as comfortable as possible. Um, we had a family, um, that actually, it was, it was an amazing family. Um, they had children, they had adopted, I think, eight different children with wow. disabilities. And their youngest one that they had adopted, um, was the one that we had on hospice services. And, um, our, our team was not there just, just to support the, the child who was on hospice services. Our team helped baptize the other six children who, um, who had never been baptized. And the, the amount of spiritual care and, um, spiritual support that our team brought into the home, because that is what the family needed at that time was just phenomenal. So we really cater our services to what the patient and family needs, regardless if they are 10 months old or if they are 110 years old. Right. Yeah. And, and you're right. Thank God it, it doesn't happen most often. But yeah, I can imagine that if I delivered a baby who, you know, the doctors told me, I don't think this baby is going to thrive, you know, for more than a year. And in, within the next eight months, we're expecting, you know, this baby to go through death. How amazing to have the support of you guys, because you're right. You wouldn't want to be alone as a new mom going through that. I just, I cannot even imagine. No, absolutely not. We actually had, um, a, a while ago, we had, um, a mom who had a set of twins who, um, she wanted them to pass away at home. And she knew that they weren't going to make it long, but she wanted them to pass away at home. So the doctors and the social workers in the hospital were just phenomenal. And she was able to discharge the same day she delivered her babies and get home before the babies were able to pass away. So they were able to pass away comfortable at home where she wanted them to pass away. So that's another, you know, great thing too, is that we do same day admissions. Um, we can do next hour admissions. If you call and say, I need somebody to come out here. We thought about hospice and I need somebody to come out here and admit dad because he's really declining. We'll be out there in that hour. There's absolutely um, no hesitation that we will be out there in that hour. Amazing. Very good. Hey, don't worry about background noise or anything, Kaylee, because I had to scoot away. I know the listeners didn't see this, but twice I had to go let my dog out and back in because she oh, was yes. scratching at my door. And I'm like, okay, I would rather just leave you just for a hair and open the door and not have that be um, a pain. So anyway, I'm sorry about that, but no oh, worries. Thank you. Um, my daughter just had one of her friends come over for a play date. And so well, that that's was fun. Yeah, that was the ruckus that we heard. Yes. Hey, that's okay. And I love, too, that I have the power to edit. I can take out. (laughs) Do you feel like there's anything else we should talk about? I guess I'm curious, like, how many nurses, like, how big is your team now that you're serving 90, like, a census of 90 people? That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So it is so, it's phenomenal. Um. And it's so exciting because Knut Nelson, um, we are just, we're an organization that is innovative and we are, you know, we're looking to expand. Hopefully we can eventually expand across the state of Minnesota. Um, I, I have been with Knut Nelson for over seven years now and it's every, every minute of it I've loved. Um, but as far as our team goes, um, we have two nurses in Baxter with our hospice patients there. Um, and then we have a social worker, a chaplain, volunteer coordinator. Um, so we've got about seven people up in our Baxter 
area. In Wendina, we've got three case managers and one admission nurse. And then we have um, a social worker who goes there. And then home health aides, of course. In Alexandria, which is our biggest territory, and we have about 57 patients in Alexandria right now, we've got four case managers and an admission nurse. We've got two social workers, um, therapeutic musicians. Um, so overall, if we put a headcount together, we've got about 45 um, hospice staff members that serve our patients. That is so amazing. I like... I was so proud of the fact that we only grew by like, you know, 10, 15 people when I was there. And now to hear just how far you guys have come, I second everything about, you know, just Knute Nelson being an absolutely wonderful organization to work for. I was blessed to have the experience with you all. And like I said, even just going through the trauma that I did over the next two years, it really prepared me to have those conversations and not be afraid if... God forbid, again, I was not meant to be here. And so um, I I just, I love it. I love hearing that the state of Minnesota, my home state, yeah. is being so well taken care of. And what a cool dream to be able to span across the entire state. That's just yeah. so cool. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's really cool. And I just, you know, like I said earlier, the uh, fact that hospice right now, it, it's, becoming more utilized, but it still is very underutilized. I don't feel like any person should die without hospice if it's not a quick sudden death. I think everybody should be on hospice services because of the support that it can provide to you and your family and that it will provide to you and your family. And nobody should die uncomfortable either. No. So having hospice on board with that would, you know, would help with that and would take care of all of that. So I just think uh, Medicare has done a great thing by creating the hospice program. It's been around for for years and years and years and years, but now it's just becoming more known. So yeah. I'm really excited to be a part of this and the growth of hospice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day today to talk to us. And I'm so excited to be able to share this good news with people because just to reiterate everything you said, it is meant to help, not hinder. And so I would agree. I, I think um, hospice should be used by everyone. There's no reason why it shouldn't be. It's, it's, death is such an unknown thing. Like you're saying, people don't go through this. They, you know, sometimes it is the first time, you know, you experience death is with a grandparent or a parent and it doesn't get easier saying goodbye, but hospice is something that I would never question to get over any deaths of any loved one in my future. You know what I mean? And I'm sure Absolutely. you feel the same. Oh, 100%. I, I feel the same. And I, I, the, I think the important part too is getting patients on hospice services as soon as possible. As soon as that doctor says, you've got a terminal illness and you're likely to pass away in six months or less, that is the time to get on hospice services because the longer amount of time you can be on hospice services, the longer you will get that benefit. The yes. longer you're going to get that quality of care, that additional care. Heck, who wouldn't want a massage weekly? Right. Or by your hospice program. You sign me up for that. Right. That. And so the sooner you get on hospice services, the better off you are. The sooner you can get grandma or grandpa on hospice services, the better off they are. And right. so I, I always, I, I always push for that early admission for, to hospice services. As long as they qualify for services, get them on. 
Yes, yes, 100%. And I know, you know, hopefully the further and longer, you know, you're in this job, you notice that people are more receptive to accepting those hospice services. But you're right, sometimes we don't see admissions until they're only going to be around for a couple weeks. And sometimes we're the people educating family and reiterating what the doctors have already said. Like, no, death is here and we can make them comfortable now. Yep, absolutely, 100%. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Kaylee. It's been wonderful talking to you. And I hope you'll give everybody up in Alexandria my best wishes. And yeah. I'm still looking forward to getting up there sometime. I just yeah, have to. Come and visit us when you when you are up here, Tess, and know that I pray for you all the time. I enjoy seeing yours and size pictures and I just keep please keep posting those. I love I love everything that you're doing and how how much life that you live and you love it. It's yeah. So well, I do. You know, it's hard with pain, but it's being managed. And I, yes, I have a lot of life left to live. And I'm, I'm so thankful for all the experience I've gotten from you guys. And who knows, maybe I'll work in hospice again one day. Come back to us, please. It it was truly like the best experience I ever had. And I was so sad I had to give it up. But I think God's timing was pretty amazing. Just preparing me um, before my troubles with you guys. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks, Tess. You too. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been Push Diaries Podcast. Please visit our website at pushdiariespodcast.com to see our mission and learn more about the guests. This is your podcast too. I want to hear your stories. Email me at pushdiariespodcast.com at gmail.com and consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com forward slash push diaries podcast thank you for listening